If you're not already there, I would invite you to turn to Mark chapter 7. And while you're turning there, there's a photo I'd like to show you that I took a few years ago. This is one of my favorite places on earth. This is from the top of Mars Hill Mountain, where my dad is from in northern Maine. And I don't know for sure which side I was looking out when I took that picture, but you can see Canada very easily because you're just a few miles from the border. And as a matter of fact, as this last time we were there, our phones kept switching back and forth between Eastern time and Atlantic time because it couldn't tell where we were. You can see right over in New Brunswick. And when I was a kid, that would be before COVID-19, that would be before 9-11, crossing borders was a lot different. And it was fairly simple. There were times that for a special occasion, we would drive across into New Brunswick for supper and then come back. And it wasn't too big a deal, but we'd have to talk to the Canadian authorities going in and we'd talk to the U.S. authorities coming back. And the name of that group, that department, is the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. That's the name. And that Customs and Border Protection just kind of jumped into my mind as I was studying this passage. Because last week, those of you who were here, we looked at the Pharisees. There were scribes and Pharisees that came from Jerusalem to find fault with Jesus. And they were finding fault with him and his disciples based on the fact that they were not obeying the ceremonial hand washings. We talked about those. And where did those ideas come from about how they needed to wash their hands to cleanse themselves from defilement? It came from not the law. It came from the tradition of the elders. So Jesus corrected them, quoted Isaiah, quoted Moses to show them it's not all about customs. It's not all about traditions. You should not and must not elevate your traditions above the word of God. In today's passage, Jesus and his disciples head north. They cross the border out of what was considered Israel at that time. There was a woman who came to Jesus, and she is a Gentile, both in terms of her ethnicity and in her religion. It was a pagan region, Tyre and Sidon. We'll talk more about it when we get to it. And at first, Jesus seemed to reject her and her request, but then he accepted them. And do you know why? Because as we saw last week, and we're going to see today, Jesus is not bound by customs or borders. He doesn't need to worry about those things. He supersedes those. He loves all people, and that he knew that there was coming a time when there was going to be a breaking down of the division between Jew and Gentile, and that he was forming something new, the church. So that's where we're headed this morning. I'm going to read our passage for us. If you would stand, I'm going to read verses 24 to the end of the chapter in Mark chapter 7. And from there, Jesus arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first, for it is not good to make the children's bread, to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, 
go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. And again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears and he spat and touched his tongue. Then, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephrathah, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loose and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather here in this place this morning, and we thank you for each person here, each family represented. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Mark and the way it reveals you as a servant and a savior. I pray that you would give us understanding today that even in these retellings of the miracles that you worked, many of which are familiar to us, that we would gain new understanding of who you are and how you work and how you respond to faith and how you respond to humility. Lord, please make this come alive to us in a new way this morning. I ask your Holy Spirit to help me to speak your word clearly and that we would have ears that are ready to hear what you have for us. Show us ways in which we need to change in response to your word and then give us your grace and courage to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I have four ideas for you out of this passage, these two stories, if you will. The first is that Jesus isn't limited by geography, culture, or ethnicity. He's not limited by that. He works where he wants, when he wants, according to the will of the Father. We're going to see parts of that in three different verses, 24, 26, and 31. And then we're going to see the story of this woman, this mother. And there we learn, second point, Jesus responds to humble faith. He responded to her. And we'll refer some to the parallel account in Matthew 15, that she had great faith. Verse, or the third point is that Jesus answers prayer according to his will and his timing. He does it on his schedule. He does it according to his plan, not necessarily just the way we're asking for it to be done or expecting it to be done. And then finally, we'll see that Jesus does all things well in those last two verses. So let's go back to verse 24 and begin looking at the idea that Jesus isn't limited by geography or culture or ethnicity. Verse 24 says, from there, well, where's there? There's probably Capernaum, but he's somewhere around the Sea of Galilee. We know that. He was in, in the plain on the west coast there, and then he went up to Capernaum, we think. From there, he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it. But he could not be hidden, 
When it says he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, I have a map for you. This is the same one we looked at, I think, two weeks ago. Because you may recall, we had the feeding of the 5,000, so they went across, and then Jesus sent them to Bethsaida, but there was a storm at sea, and they got blown off course, so they came back over here to the plain of Gennesaret. And now from there, we go way up here to Tyre. And that was plus or minus 30 miles, basically. So it, it was a little bit of a hike. It would have taken a day or more for them to walk up there. These were port cities on the Mediterranean Sea. And they were trade cities, and they were wealthy. They were well off. As far as we know, based on what the Gospels tell us, this is the only time that Jesus ventured beyond the borders of Israel. It's the only time he left what was considered the boundaries of Israel at that time. It also gives us a little bit of a foretaste, a foreshadowing of what he's going to do in extending the gospel, extending the kingdom to include Gentiles. At that time, this was an area of paganism. Those of you who know the Old Testament, one of the worst kings of Israel was Ahab, and he had a wife named Jezebel. Guess where Jezebel was from? This area of Tyre and Sidon, which at that time was part of Syria, according to the way the boundaries were were drawn. And it was a place of wickedness. You remember that Jezebel introduced Baal worship and Astroth worship into Israel? So we're talking about the worship of a god of materialism and prosperity. And what did they do to worship that god? They sacrificed their children, among other things. So imagine, if you could, a culture in which people sacrifice their children in order to pursue prosperity and financial wealth. We can imagine that, can't we? What about Ashtoreth? That was a fertility goddess worshipped through sexual immorality. Can you imagine a culture in which people are worshipping materialism and money and wealth and immorality? Yeah, we can kind of imagine that. That's this area, a Gentile area, but a pagan area, and even by the standards of that day, a very immoral area. And that's where Jesus chose to go. It says there he wanted no one to know. That's not because he thought he was going to offend somebody by going there, but rather he was withdrawing from the area of Galilee because the authorities from Jerusalem, the scribes, the Pharisees, had already been coming. They came to trap him. We know from several chapters ago, they're already plotting to kill him. So he is not seeking public ministry in this area. It's a Gentile area. He's sent first and foremost to the sheep of Israel. But he's there, and probably they were trying to get rest before the feeding of the 5,000. Remember that? They had gone across to try to take some time after the disciples had been set out two by two. So probably some rest, definitely teaching his disciples, preparing them. They're headed into a new phase of ministry leading up to his crucifixion in Jerusalem. So that's the time period, probably the last year or so of public ministry. And they are getting away. But then it says he could not be hidden. It's a strange statement. We don't know anything about the house he was staying in. Did they know somebody? Did one of the disciples know somebody? But there's a place that they're going into a house, but it says he couldn't be hidden. Why? Because he was already famous even in Tyre and Sidon. Back in chapter 3, we read that there was a great multitude from Galilee, and then there was also a great multitude, those from Tyre and Sidon. They heard how many things he was doing, and they came to him. 
So people knew about him even 30 miles away from the base of operations at that time. We're going to see now about one woman in particular who came to him. It says he couldn't be hidden. This woman came to him and responded to him, second point for today, in humble faith. Verse 25 says, For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she immediately, I'm adding that because some of your translations have that, it's in the Greek, immediately came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. When it says young daughter, this is the same Greek term used back in chapter 5. There it was translated little daughter. This was Jairus' daughter. We learned was 12 years old. And Jesus restored her back to life. She had died. He resurrected her. So a young daughter, maybe not 12, maybe older than that. Some people think she may have been into her teens and of the age to marry, but, but she was not an adult. She was still a fairly young woman, and it's her daughter, and she's very concerned about her daughter. Why? Because her daughter had an unclean spirit. Matthew, the parallel account, Matthew fifteen twenty two says that she was severely demon-possessed. We don't read about many children in the Gospels who were demon-possessed, but she was, and it was a severe case. What did that look like? I don't know. How did she become demon-possessed? I don't know. But remember, it's a very pagan area with worship of demons. It describes this woman as a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth. So if we take that apart, she is Gentile. She is not Jewish. That's what the Greek part tells us. She probably spoke the language Greek. She was of the Greek culture. Syro, that's Syria. Phoenician, that's the area she was from. So she's a Syrian from the region of Phoenicia. As we would look at it, and particularly as the disciples would have looked at it, like looked at her, she was a woman. And in that culture, that time and place, that was a strike against her. Why would he have anything to do with her? Think of the woman of Samaria in John 4. Same idea. She was a Gentile. Another reason. Why would he even speak to her? And third, we don't know this for sure, but in the area, it's likely she had been or still was an idolater. One who worshipped idols, a pagan. So why would he even give her the time of day? At first, it seems like he didn't. It says that she came and fell at his feet, an act of worship, face down on the pavement or on the floor of the house. And she probably knew how unacceptable it was for her to approach a Jewish rabbi. But she did it anyway. Why would she do that? You moms in the room, why would she do that? Because her daughter is severely demon-possessed. And we as parents, and I think you mothers in particular, would do anything for your children. And that's what she's doing. She's coming to a Jewish rabbi who likely is going to scoff at her or send her away. But she's trying because she's heard of what he can do. And she's coming to ask him. There's only one other time Mark uses that phrase, fell at his feet. And it's in reference to Jairus, who also was asking help for his daughter back in chapter 5. And the verb tense is that she kept asking him. She was begging him over and over. She was pleading with him. She was making the case, please help my daughter. And if you compare this with Matthew, he didn't respond at all at first. It seemed like he was ignoring her. The disciples, on the other hand, did not ignore her. They went to their normal default, and that was, send her away. 
She's crying after us. Get rid of her. Same as they said when the 5,000 men and however many children and women were there. Send them away. Let them find their own food. Let them fend for themselves. So the disciples want to send her away. Jesus isn't speaking to her. And then Jesus does speak to her. Look at verse 27. But Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to little dogs. If you mark in your Bible, underline or circle or put a box around, children first and little dogs. When it talks about children, Jesus is talking about the Jewish people, the children of the house of Israel. And he's saying, whether to the entire Jewish people or whether he's speaking specifically to his disciples, who he has there to train there in the house, one or the other, he's saying, the bread, the teaching, the blessings, they belong to the Jewish people. It's not appropriate for me to stop teaching these disciples and take time with your problem. Seems a little harsh, doesn't it? It's not really what we normally expect from Jesus, but that's how he begins. What, as we continue in the passage, we're going to see this is a test of her faith. He's finding out what she believes. He's finding out what she's willing to do and how she's going to respond. This idea of the Jews first is repeated elsewhere in the New Testament. Romans 1 Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, here it is, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So that word first is important because it holds out the hope. If there's a first, then there's a second or a last or a later. So if this blessing, the bread is what he's calling it in his illustration, if the bread is for the Jewish people first, then maybe the Gentiles have some hope. Maybe there is hope for them to receive God's grace as well. Now, little dogs. Would any of us like to be called a little dog by Jesus? Probably not. And you look at that and you say, man, he is giving her a hard time. But what's interesting, if you know the culture, the Jewish people looked down on and even described Gentiles as dogs. But they didn't use the word that Jesus is using here. Your translation probably says little dogs or something like that. Why? Because he's differentiating. It would have been an insult, and some people think it was even like a a slur, a cuss word at that time, if he had used the word that normally Jewish people would use for Gentiles. He doesn't use that. That word means mangy, vicious mongrel. But he's using a word that means a house pet. A dog that would be part of the household would be Indoors, a pet to the kids. Somebody described it this way, not dogs, but doggies. Not outside scavengers, but household companions. That's the word that he's choosing to use for her. So is he being hard on her? Is he giving this brokenhearted mother a hard time? No, but he's testing her. He's going to bring forth a verbal expression of the faith that he sees in her. He is interested not just in healing her daughter, which we've read the passage. We know he's going to do that. But he wants a relationship with her. He could have healed her daughter, and she would have gone on her way. But he is interested in the heart of this woman who is so desperate for her daughter. She's come, and and she's begging 
a Jewish rabbi, to do something. Her response to him is remarkable. Some of us probably would have been offended and stormed off, and that's not what she does. Apparently, she's pretty quick-witted also because she takes what he says and respectfully puts it right back to him. Look at it. It's verse 28. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Now, raise your hand if you have a dog that's an inside dog at home. It comes inside. Okay, keep your hand up if you have a rule against feeding the dog from the table. Okay, keep your hand up if you feed the dog from the table anyway. No, you don't have to. But you all know we had dogs growing up. They're there at mealtime. If they're allowed to be in the room, they're there. And you will not have to do any sweeping afterward, right? That's the idea. They're going to get the crumbs that fall. Maybe your kid is also slipping them probably a green vegetable to see if they'll eat it. Brussels sprouts, there you go. But that's the picture. And those of you who have pets, we're going to stick with dogs for the moment. You all consider them part of the family, right? I'm not saying they are, but they're part of the family. So an important part of the household, in the household. That's the picture Jesus is using with her. Not a wolf-like creature that I'm afraid of out in the street, but my dog that knows me, my dog that's around at mealtime inside. That's what Jesus is doing, and she latches onto that term. So she describes herself as a little dog. This is amazing, humble faith. We saw that she's already prostrated herself. She's bowed down. She has a worshipful attitude. John MacArthur said she has a complete absence of pride and self-reliance. So here's how I want us to understand this. You cannot cling to your pride and come to God. You can't do it. It's impossible. Some of us are so concerned about what other people are going to think of us or what we believe is true about ourselves that we just can't admit our own sin. We can't admit wrongdoing. We think we need to justify ourselves and make ourselves look good to others. So if we were in this story, we would be saying, oh, I'm not a dog. I'm a good person. I'm better than most people. He shouldn't call me a dog. I'm not like that. But what does the Bible tell us? We are deceiving ourselves if we think that we don't have any sin. You can read that in 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. What does Romans tell us? That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because even when we think, I'm a good person, I keep the law, I keep the rules... I, I'm kind to other people. Even if that's true of you, Jesus set the standard pretty high that if I hate somebody, that's similar to murder. If I have a lustful thought inside me, that's the same as adultery. Why? His point was that sin comes from the heart. We talked about that last week, didn't we? And down deep inside, every one of us is sinful. But in order to come to God, in order to acknowledge our need of a Savior, in order to confess Him as the Savior, we have to realize that we have sin. We have to begin there. And she had that kind of humility. She didn't argue. She used his own word choice and said, It's okay. I'll be a dog. 
You can call me a dog. But she wanted to receive the healing for her, for, for her daughter. John Phillips said she would gladly be a doggy if that would enable her to get a crumb. Another way to say that is that I'll be a doggy if I get to be in God's house. The sons of Korah wrote Psalm 84, and it says there, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather be an outsider, so to speak, that could just spend eternity with God in heaven than to look good to everybody and fool all the people and spend eternity apart from God. So if I can paraphrase what she's saying, I have nothing, I deserve nothing, I can do nothing to help my daughter. And she says, Lord, please help me. And he does. He shows amazing kindness, grace, mercy. And he elevates her, this doggy. He makes a member of the household of faith. A family member. Not just like a family member, like your favorite pet, dog, but makes her a daughter. From a little dog to a child of God. Someone said, no longer under the table, but now a member of the family at the table. He said to her in verse 29, for this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. Again, the parallel passage, Matthew 15, he says, woman, great is your faith. He recognizes the faith in her. He commends her for it. He grants her request because of it. Warren Wiersbe said, great faith is faith that takes God at his word and will not let go until God meets the need. She is humble. She is persistent. And he grants her request. He says, the demon has gone out of your daughter. This is the only miracle recorded in Mark at a distance. And he doesn't even give a vocal command. He doesn't say, demon, go out of her. From a distance, without addressing the demon, without ever seeing the daughter or knowing the situation, we think, he takes care of it. And he knows it's taken care of. The demon has gone out of your daughter. The verb tense says that the cure was complete. It was final. It's not that she had a little bit of a rest from that demon tormenting her. It was done. It was over. He was victorious, as he always was. And verse 30 gives us the result. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Lying there peacefully. We don't know what had gone on. We don't know any of the details. But it was bad. And when she came home, it was over. It was done. Our third point is that Jesus answers prayer according to his will and his timing. So now the Lord returned to the region of Galilee. Here's our map again. We're going from Tyre and Sidon, that region, and going back down to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to an area called Decapolis. We've come across that term before. It means the ten cities. It's located on the east side of the lake. And the last time he had been on the east side of the lake, anybody remember what happened? The demon-possessed man who lived in the tombs. Jesus cleansed him from the demon possession and the demons said, there are a bunch of us, we go by legion, 
Could we go into the herd of swine? Can we go into the pigs? And Jesus let them, and they caused the pigs to go jump in the sea and drown. And how did the people respond? Leave, please. We're afraid, and we think you're going to wreck our economy. Would you please leave? That was the last time he was in the Decapolis, but he's back. And he gets a much better reception. Why do you suppose that is? Remember that man wanted to go with Jesus? He said, please, let me go with you. Maybe even as one of your disciples, maybe what he was asking. And Jesus said, no, I want you to stay here and I want you to tell everybody. Tell your family, tell your kindred, tell everybody what I've done for you. And I think he did. Because when Jesus comes back, they aren't wanting to throw him out of town or keep him from coming. They seem to have accepted him into their region. Verse 31 is where we'll pick it up. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of the Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. And they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to put his hand on him. Where it says he had an impediment in his speech, it means he could hardly talk. He was speaking with difficulty. Some people think the man stammered. That could be. And his friends, whoever they were, they're not named here, they brought him to Jesus, and they wanted Jesus to heal him. And they obviously believed Jesus could heal him, which is great. And they even had an idea of, here's what we need you to do. We need you to put your hand on him and heal him, and we're good. And we'd like to do that now, please. And that's, that's usually how we approach Jesus with our prayer requests, right? We know how you want, we want you to do it. We know when we want you to do it. Go ahead. Do it. And there's nothing wrong with specific prayers. That's not what I'm saying. But often he doesn't answer the way we think, and often he doesn't answer when we think he's going to. And that's what we see in this story. If it seems to you like Jesus isn't answering your prayers, or he's not answering them in the way you had hoped, or at the time you had hoped, it very well may be that he is testing and growing your faith. Because he has a greater agenda in mind. He has a greater plan that we don't see. Remember from the Old Testament, Isaiah said, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. Why? Because he knows the end from the beginning. He knows how it's going to play out. He knows how it's going to give him glory. We're in verse... 33. And as we read this again, I want you to ask yourself the question, if it hasn't occurred to you yet, how is Jesus going to communicate with a guy who's deaf and can't talk? Verse 33. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be opened. So what is Jesus doing? I've talked to some of you, you've learned letters and, and some words in American Sign Language. What Jesus seems to be doing here is a type of sign language, not American Sign Language, but whatever would have communicated well at that time. This is from someone by the last name of Ferguson who was quoted in another commentary. It says, the man could not speak, could not hear Jesus and was also incapable of speaking to Jesus. So Jesus spoke to him the only way he could understand, through sign language. And the fingers pointing to or possibly placed in the ears and taken out, he's telling him, I'm going to remove what's blocking your hearing. And spitting 
and then touching the man's tongue meant I'm going to remove the blockage from your mouth. I'm going to take care of this for you. But he didn't just do that. Because the guy may have thought, something weird's going on here, this is a magician. He looked up to heaven in an act of prayer to let him know, this is something that only God can do for you. Jesus wanted the man to understand that it was not magic, but God's grace that healed him. So he's doing these things the man could see, but he couldn't hear, and he couldn't talk in ways that people could understand. So there, there wasn't a possibility of normal communication. Jesus communicated with him to show him, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of this blockage in your life. I'm going to remove it from you. And when I do it, it's going to be in the power of God alone. And then it says something else. In addition to looking up to heaven, it says Jesus sighed. And literally it means he groaned. It's a little strange for us to think about. Some people think that Jesus was sighing over the broken creation. And very well, that could be the case. We read about that in Romans 8 and in Corinthians and other places. It could be that he had deep sympathy for this man. Because certainly he did. We read over and over, he had compassion on the multitude. He had compassion on the individual. He was moved with compassion. We've read that several times already. So that could be. It could be that this is just another way of describing prayer. It's connected to the idea of looking up. He sighed because this is the same root word that we have in Romans 8.26. It says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession with us with groanings which cannot be uttered. That's how the Holy Spirit prays for us when we don't know how to pray. So that may be God praying because Jesus is God. And then he says something. It's interesting that he says it out loud because he's in the process of healing the guy and he couldn't hear anything. But he says, Ephatha. That's an Aramaic word and immediately Mark translates it for us. Be opened. It means be completely opened. And what happened? Immediately, Mark says, verse 35, his ears were opened and the impediment in his tongue was loose and he spoke plainly. His ears were opened, thoroughly, completely opened. He could hear perfectly. We don't know. Most of what I read this week thinks that he became deaf, that he wasn't born deaf. So all of a sudden he could hear better than he had ever heard in his life. And the impediment of his tongue was loose. Literally, it says the shackle of his tongue was released. So like a prisoner that was bound in chains. Jesus broke the shackles, the fetters that this man was under. Some people think there was demonic activity involved here as well. I don't know. Could be. But he freed him. He freed him completely. And then, verse 36, then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. The them, we assume, is the man and his friends, those who had brought him in the first place to say, Jesus, would you please put your hand on him and heal him? And he tells them, tell no one. Again, he's not intending to have a huge ministry there in Gentile territory but he couldn't be hidden. So he's in the Decapolis, still uh, back in what we would consider Israel, but a Gentile area of Israel. 
And we've pointed out in this study before, and will again, Jesus told these Gentiles, don't tell anybody. And what did they do? They went and told everybody. And he tells us, go tell everybody. And what do we do? Usually we don't tell anybody. That's kind of how it works. So I want you to understand, true faith obeys. These crowds may have been impressed by what Jesus did, and they may have told everybody about it. But they were not necessarily disciples. I'm not going to argue from silence. I don't know whether this man became a believer in Jesus or not. I would be inclined to think he would, but I don't know. It doesn't say anything about his faith. It doesn't say anything about his friend's faith. There's no reference to anybody's faith in this particular miracle. So I don't know. But I do know that saving faith results in a change of life. And it will result in obedience to Jesus. Verse 37 goes on and says, They were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Where it says they were astonished beyond measure, these words, um, your translation may say something like overwhelmed with amazement. Almost every translation is going to have it different because there is no English word that covers this. This is to be overwhelmed with amazement in the extreme. As, as much as your mind can be blown, that's what this is saying. It's beyond anything they can imagine. Why? Because he's making the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. These people may have been wondering if Jesus was the Messiah. Don't know that for sure. There was a mixture of Jew and Gentile in this area of the Decapolis. But when it says he makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak, even if the crowd didn't understand what he was saying, he was saying this for the benefit of disciples. Because the disciples are hearing, all these people are saying he makes the deaf to hear, he makes the mute to speak. And that would have been a light bulb moment for them because they would recognize from Isaiah. Isaiah 35 says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, Be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be, deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah had predicted that when the Messiah comes, he's going to do these kind of miracles. And whether the crowd got it or not, the disciples would have realized, wow, should have realized, I'll say that. This could be the, the Messiah. This is further proof that he is more than just a good teacher. Some of you may know the old hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. That's the implication here from Isaiah and then from this passage in Mark. Hear him, ye deaf. His praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Sing it out. You blind, behold Look, see, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. This passage began by telling us that Jesus couldn't be hidden. And it ends by telling us that he's done all things well. So that's our last point. We'll do it quickly. Jesus does all things well. That's what they said. And it seems to be an echo of what we read in Genesis 1 and 2. 
If you do a reading plan, if you try to go through the Bible, you'll probably start Genesis next month. And when you read chapters 1 and 2, you're going to read over and over that it was good. It was good. It was very good. So we have that. And then we have Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. He's done all things well. So as we wrap this up, Jesus responds to humble faith. Anyone who's a believer in Jesus has to come to the point that you realize nothing good I can do matters. I cannot save myself. And you look to the one who can save. You're not looking inside. You're looking up. And when you get to that point, you call on him and he forgives and he saves. That's who he is. It's what he does. And you can do that today. You can call on him to rescue you. In the same way she said, Lord, help me. That can be you today. Believers, Jesus does all things well. Do you believe that? And of course you say, yeah, I believe that. Yeah. No, do you really believe that? A thought occurred to me yesterday morning that may have occurred to you before, but that's that the woman in this story likely would have never met Jesus if she had not had a daughter who was demon-possessed. The man in this story likely would never have met Jesus if he had not been deaf and had a speech impediment. And believe me, I'm not wishing that on you or any of your family members. But I believe often the way we meet Jesus or the way we come back to Jesus is the trials that we face or the crisis that he puts us in. And in those moments, do you believe he has done all things well? He has ordered it all for my good and for his glory. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Our Father, in the quietness of this moment, if your Holy Spirit is working in somebody's heart, I pray that that true faith would obey. Lord, if there's somebody here or somebody watching online who does not practice the idea that you do all things well, is struggling to apply it to his or her life right now because of hardship, Lord, we may believe, but we need you to help our unbelief. We need you to strengthen and increase our faith. Lord, would you send your comfort and your strength to that one who is struggling to believe that you do all things well. Lord, they may, may be somebody, child or adult, who does not yet believe on you for salvation. 
Lord, it takes humility. It takes us coming to the end of ourselves and calling on you to do what only you can do and not save us from our sin and from death. So we pray that if there's anybody who hasn't done that yet, that today would be the day of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.